The Radix scenario imagines a pretty long period where there is no electric power. And so as part of that, are we gonna have internet access? Are we gonna have access to the cloud? And if we presuppose all of these things, we basically need to take everyone back to the Stone Age and build it back up again. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Dauenhauer. Today we are talking about grid resilience in the face of a cyber attack. You've probably heard statistics about major companies being hit by a million cyber attack threats per day. My guess says all companies get that many attacks. What's critical is that none get through. Cyber attacks to the electrical grid are incredibly serious. Intermittent outages around the country alone are responsible for at least $100 billion in annual losses. Now that's business as usual. But what if the grid was hit with a large-scale attack that could take power out for days or weeks. 2020 has shown what shutting down a country's economy can do. Cyber attacks could be like another COVID-19. My guess says his group have developed tools for fighting these threats, and they've invited utilities from around the country to participate. While the primary purpose of the exercise is to test new cyber defenses, it's also a valuable training ground for transmission workers who may be on the front lines during a possible cyber attack. So that these tests are isolated, these exercises are held on Plum Island, northeast of Long Island in New York. Plum Island essentially runs on its own grid, independent from the shore, so there's no risk of these cyber attacks affecting the mainland. <laughs> Reminds me of the Greatest Simpsons episode ever, where Homer has to go to college after causing a nuclear meltdown inside a testing van. Relax, it's just a simulator. Nothing can go wrong. Just poke blindly at the controls until they let you go. Oh, oh, oh. No, this can't be happening! If testing cyber attacks wasn't jarring enough, Plum Island itself has a bit of a creepy history. Since 1954, it has been home to the Plum Island Animal Disease Center, where they work with live viruses and it has been home to just about as many conspiracy theories. In 2008, a strange rodent-like animal with a beak was found washed ashore and is now known as the Montauk Monster. Back on the other side of the island, my guest says they have conducted four of these cyber attack exercises with researchers and utilities. Participants are working under an assumed breach mentality where hackers have already gotten into the system. In each of these exercises, a cyber attack has completely knocked out power, requiring what's known as a black start. Power plants can lose power from time to time, but if all the power plants are down, how do you bring them back on? They need some power at the beginning. It's as if a town ran out of gas and none of the fuel delivery trucks had gasoline either. What you get on Plum Island is a combination of cybersecurity professionals mixed with utility experts with decades of hands-on experience who must slowly but surely bring the lights back on. My guest says a lot of these experienced hands question whether it would be smarter to abandon many of the modern tools in the transmission sector. 
primarily SCADA, which allows them to remote monitor facilities like substations. I first heard about this program about a year ago from one of my colleagues. They were interested in going back for another exercise. He said they got part of the grid on the first day, but were hit by another virus. That's right. To add to the challenge, another group during the exercise is still plotting cyber attacks. <laughs> Turns out not all monsters have teeth or beaks. My guest today is Michael Tucker, Senior Engineer and Consultant for the DARPA RADIX program. RADIX stands for Rapid Attack Detection Isolation and Characterization Systems. DARPA stands for the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, part of the Department of Defense. DARPA's always held a place in my imagination. I once dated a girl who says she worked for DARPA's Skunk Works division. That's about as much as I got out of her, other than she was on a team developing a flying Humvee. You can see for yourself if you search for it. Mike says he was tapped for the Radix program because he has a special blend of experience in both the energy sector and cybersecurity. Some would call that a unicorn. So far, Radix has held six exercises, four on Plum Island, and a seventh virtual exercise coming soon. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Michael Tucker. All right, we're here with Michael Tucker, Senior Engineering Consultant for Cybersecurity at the DARPA Radix program. First of all, let's talk about what it isn't. So I think when I was first hearing about it, I thought it was more of a comprehensive black start. They were testing bringing a power plant back online, or maybe it was testing an EMP attack, more physical things that would make it difficult to bring the power back on in the modern era. But this really is bringing back on the system system after a cyber attack. That's correct. The Radix program itself, the way that DARPA sees it is that we're kind of looking at the long tail here, all right? The piece where nobody's really taking a good hard look. And that hard look happened to be Black Start. And DARPA's looking at it from a mission effectiveness standpoint, as in America's ability to project power overseas. One of the things that they see as a potential risk is ensuring the supply of energy to facilities and systems that are crucial to being able to do that. And so they see Black Start as being a major component of all of that, of ensuring energy resilience and reliability to these facilities. And they wanted to cover it specifically in the Radix program. And so it is related to a cyber attack. So they took a look at the available research that was already out there, the available attacks that were already out there and said, okay, if an adversary gets in, if once again, so all of this presupposes an adversary finding its way around the significant defenses that many utilities have put in place and that many utilities are regulatory required. So they said, okay, those are great defenses. We're going to assume that so, that an advanced attacker has found their way through them. They've wormed their way through them and said, okay, once they're there, what are they going to do? How are they going to do it? And how do we get back from it? And that's what the Radix technology development program is all about. They built technologies that aid in that piece where the adversary's gotten in, they've, they've done all the damage that they felt like doing. Now we got to get it back and running again so that we can once again project American power overseas. Sure. And Mike, how did you get involved in the program. Why did DARPA tap you to work with this? My understanding is, is that a call went out once DARPA had reached a certain point in the project where they wanted a liaison with the Department of Energy. And they wanted somebody who, uh, <laughs> for lack of a better term, could spell SCADA. Sorry, old joke. And they contacted me. I had a couple of discussions with them regarding energy and regarding Black Start and regarding cyber and regarding how we would structure some of this stuff. And it's been an adventure since then, to put it mildly. We got to talk about Plum Islands. So oh, yeah. The more I wikied... <laughs> 
Plum Island, the more strange it seemed. There are small islands all around the country and they all make their own power. I think there's an island in Alabama, for instance. So what is unique about Plum Island for an application like this? So the best thing about Plum Island was that they had their own grid, they controlled their own grid, and they were the only users on their grid. They could actually carve off a piece of it and we could come in and do some improvements on the grid and we could run our system on their grid with our modifications and we could use their resources to do it. And it ended up being a really, really fantastic partnership because we get about two thirds of the island that's not related to the animal disease mission with which to hook up to our own generators and have our own substations and run our own load. And Plum Island itself makes it good for the exercise because we can isolate everyone on this exercise. The Radix scenario imagines a pretty long period where there is no electric power. And so as part of that, are we going to have internet access? Are we going to have access to the cloud? Are we going to be able to look up wikis? Are we going to be able to pull down configurations? Are we going to have reliable email? Are we going to have any of this stuff? And if we presuppose all of these things, we basically need to take everyone back to the Stone Age and basically build it back up again. And the Radix research is a part of that. The exercise is another piece of that. One of the anecdotal tales that came out of the Radix program during one of the very first meetings where there was a discussion about Blackstart and everyone was hooking up all their servers and systems, some evil genius walked over to the breaker box for the building and turned off power to the building and said, okay, what do you do now? (laughs) And everybody looked at each other. A chunk of that came out of that basic anecdotal experience. And and Plum Island just made it a really great place. There is no monster. I just want to tell you, there is no Plum Island monster. It doesn't exist. I was going to bring that up in the monologue. The participants, these are people from utilities all around the country. They go there for about a week is the way it's explained. And What do they endure in a typical week at Plum Island? Endure is exactly the word I would use. We have former military folks who designed and run this exercise. They do not permit weakness from our utility participants, I'll tell you that. And they set a real high bar. And every utility that we've had come has met that bar consistently. And they've worked, in all honesty, I would consider a very frustrating and painful type exercise with just incredible fortitude. They show up every day and they show up happy or reasonably happy and they go and they butt heads against a challenge that you have no physical way of putting your hand around it. It's not like it's a pole you can lift or a transformer you can put in place or a connection that you can make with electric. This is all bits and bytes. And so it's a very nerdy conceptual type endeavor at this point. They go into it. The first two days are always chaos and I won't even call that organized chaos, all right? We have a set of tools. Everybody is trying to figure out, okay, what capabilities that they can use with these tools. The tool performers themselves are like, hey, we can help you here if you want to do this, all right? And it takes several iterations back and forth generally with those first two days to get everyone up to speed on the capabilities of the Radix technology. And then once that it's in place, folks start using it. One of the things that is posited in the Radix scenario is that you can't trust your SCADA anymore. And they make it so that you can't trust your SCADA anymore. Things don't work, values are switched, scalings are different. One of the tools that was developed was literally an out-of-band SCADA system, which you connect up to specific data points within our substations. Yeah, and I think that this is also not just folks on their computers. You no. Have, for instance, you have like a lot of work management guys, the guys out in the mm-hmm. field, because you are physically bringing electrical infrastructure back online, you know, oh, yeah. fighting back the cyber attacks. Yeah, especially for the systems that currently run the grid. There has to be a bit of a hands-on type 
type interaction there. Yep. Often they have proprietary interfaces. They have interfaces that are not well known. The Radix tools done leaps and bounds about making that easy. A lot of this opens their eyes to how a cyber attack could really make their restoration process a nightmare because you literally have equipment that you have built your entire career around and here it is lying to you. It's responding to commands that you never gave it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a humbling type piece, I think, in many cases. Like many of them just sort of go, okay, we'll throw out the cyber. Like to heck with this cyber gear. We'll just run the grid as it is because our grid is designed to be safe and it runs just fine without the protective relays, but their system can't do that. It's right? way too not, complex. Not for that. Right. Not in all cases anyway. Yeah. And so you're kind of like, okay, well, do we get the cyber stuff up and running so that we have protection and so that we have remote control and that we have remote maintenance capability? Or do we go to a more 1950s style grid for a little while? And that was actually one question that came out of this. So it's a bit humbling, but it's also one of those where our transmission folks turn to the cyber folks and say, okay, what could be going wrong? And that's when the cyber folks put their hands together and go, well, you could have a firmware update issue. Somebody could have changed the configuration. How do these things work? And you literally have folks who work substation and relay for their entire career pulling up some of the programs that they use to access these and showing the cyber folks, okay, this is what it is. This is what it does. And like, well, what happens if you switch this? Or how do we know that the software that's on this is legitimate software? Or could this be getting commands from somewhere else? And you get to see them work through this process together. And then you have the <laughs> you have our Radix tool developers in the background just kind of going, come on, pull us in, coach. We can help you. We can make this fast. We can make this work. Once you figure this out for this one substation, we can go replicate this everywhere. And so it's been a very fascinating experience from that side. The Jimmy Fallon character, the IT guy who just tells everybody to move. <laughs> yeah. Get out of my way. Yeah. Well, and that's one of the things too, is that when the utility participants are there, this is their utility. Yeah. All right. They are utility A, they are utility B, or they are utility C. I wish we'd come up with better names, but it's too late now. That's them. That's their equipment. All right. Our Radix participants need to tell them, this is what our technology does. This is the limitations of the technology. Here's where I think it would be a benefit. And the utility folks also have to ask, hey, is it possible that you could brick something? And how do you know that you've bricked it? Because that's an important consideration too to them when they're bringing something back online is that they want to make sure that it works because if it doesn't, what are the potential consequences? And then when you scale that up to their grids, they are very well aware of the scale up factor. What if this was scaled up to my system? And then what am I worrying about at this point. Again, this is the long tail of the long tail. This is the scenario that DARPA developed, and this is the one that we're working within. But it has many commonalities to other potential concerns that they may have in the future, too. We talked about this being an endurance exercise. So how punishing is it really? I mean, how much sleep do they get? Do they get to go home? Do they get to sleep at all? I'm just imagining hell week from my days at LSU. Yep. The island lets us on at around nine or so, and then they kick us out by around four or 4.30. That's going to be different for Radix Exercise 7. So there's a good six, six and a half hours of exercise time in there, not to mention transit time. These are long days. This is 10 hours. In some cases, it could be up to 11, depending on conditions or if somebody decides to go in early or someone decides to stay late to have discussions with the exercise team or the performers. If you're trying to burn the candle at both ends as a utility participant and you're on island, you're going to have 
a real rough time. Yeah. I read there's a simulated natural gas pipeline there that's part of the exercise. Now, how does that factor into the simulation? Yeah. DARPA had several discussions, and one of the things that they wanted to represent in the exercise was the idea that some natural gas was required in order to get one of the generators. So we have three generators, one on each crank path. They wanted to simulate that there was a need for that generator to have reliable natural gas. And the way that it got it is that the pipeline itself ran near several substations, two of them, in fact. And so if you got one of the substations up, you had 50% output on the generator. If you had two of them up, you had 100% power on the generator, but you couldn't run that particular generator. Part of the scenario would be is that you had to clear your way to some of these compressor stations to get that other generator online. And this is supposed to reflect the idea that there might be compressor stations that are relying on electricity from the grid. But if the grid's down, those compressor stations don't work. So you can't get the generation back up again until you get those compressor stations running again too. Yeah, you're basically incorporating an ecosystem that's beyond the typical transmission generation system. We're talking about fuel delivery as well in that case. That's good. That's a lot to think about. Mike, we talked about this before, but one of the most intriguing points that you have is there's another team essentially playing the role of the black cats, right? Constantly trying to throw the team restoring power off. So it's just so maniacal. I love it. Tell us how they keep the other team on their heels. So basically what's happening is, is you have the people who come there and then you have a whole group who kind of play the people constantly trying to take them down again. As you're restoring it, they're still trying to hit you, right? Yep. We call them TA5. They're our exercise team. They went out and they brought in a lot of folks from the security community who have done work in this environment, are very capable programmers and tool developers and things like this. And <laughs> they're part of the live part of this too. So they'll not only set things up like the way that an advanced attacker might have reconfigured the grid, but then they'll also help stymie efforts. So they'll inject commands, they'll do different types of network skullduggery, they'll send valid commands, they'll send invalid commands. They keep the other team on their heels by making sure that they've fully corrected a problem before moving forward. So if you happen to miss one or you miss a piece of it, the cackling maniacs may come back and they may reopen whatever door was closed or something that's been deeply implanted in a system but missed might cause chaos on the electric power grid that we have there on Plum Island. That's generally how they keep them on their toes. And then the last two days is called Live Adversary, where it's open to whatever these guys can think of that happens to be within the same vein of validating claims. I can't go too deep into exactly what they're doing because that would be unfair. And you're giving uh, away the test. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. I, I don't want to do that. So well, well, you know, I'm sure those first few days are feeling like maybe when you play a video game and you haven't really leveled up a whole lot. So you're just getting whooped all the time. So oh, and you get <laughs> trounced. Yeah. 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 So kind of keep the spirits up. How do you keep the guys from basically throwing their hands up and being like, F this? <laughs> so here's where the DOE involvement came in. When a major cyber incident like this happens, we stand up the infrastructure under PPD 41. All right. And that involves DOE as the sector specific agency. It involves DHS and it involves FBI. The DOE part of this is recovery. We're kind of extending some of the work that we do in hurricanes and other natural disasters as part of all hazards. And we're saying cyber is one of those hazards. So the idea here is, is that we are taking in as much data as possible through our incident command, which was set up specifically as part of the DOE partnership to share information between the three utilities, collate it together, provide overwatch, but also provide other resources that can look at specific issues that the utility who's fighting the fire at that 
that point, who's just trying to get their systems back up online, all right, making sure that they get enough information so that they can share it with everybody. Yeah. Because who knows where else this is at this point. And so part of that hope comes from getting that information out so that you can potentially get an answer from the larger group that's above you, who's not fighting the fire, who can who can spend significant time and resources looking at a problem and them saying, oh, do this. And the people who are playing utility A, B, and C, are they literally different utilities playing the A, B, and C utilities, or is it just one group, one company, typically? So one of the concerns that I had in Radix Exercise 7 was that there was going to be a breakdown because people didn't know each other. For Radix Exercise 7, I have kept utilities together as much as humanly possible. Now, does that mean that one utility gets to play utility A and one utility gets to play utility B? No, we have too many participants for that. We have paired groups together. Mm. And we are working with their cyber leads to get an organization in place that allows those two utilities to work together on their problem. And so in that case, we have for utility A this time around, we have three utilities that are participating as utility A. We have two that are participating as utility B. And then we have two that are participating as utility C for this exercise. And they're all working together through this virtual environment. We try not to mix and match too much. In the past, I have just simply to fill certain slots. But for this exercise, not so much. Mike, looking at historical data, and this was a slide that I noticed on a presentation you made a few years ago, cyber attacks have exploded in the last 10 years. So what's happened and where are these attacks coming from? I think there are three primary places where these cyber attacks are coming from and why they're happening is number one, energy itself has got a much larger online presence, even through mundane things that we would consider like bill pay or being able to track outages or call center operations or things like that. A lot of it is gone online as to have utilities own online presences have expanded. I think one part of it is if you stick a large foot in the water, more of your foot's going to get wet. Sure. Number two, Two is that cyber attacks in and of themselves have been recognized as profitable. Back in 1998, when I was still in high school, we had trolls and we had hacktivists and we had kids who were figuring things out. Well, now there's money involved. Over the past 10 years, we've seen that concerted purpose skyrocket. It's becoming, for lack of a better word, organized crime. The other one, too, is that greater availability to folks. All right, it used to be that you had to have a very specific set of skills. Now we've come to the place where certain things are commoditized, you know, Botnets can be built and created pretty swiftly. The other one, too, is if there is technical sophistication, it's readily for hire. One thing I want to caution is a lot of these attack numbers, especially those that are saying, hey, our firewall has gotten a million attacks per day. Everybody kind of gets near a million per day if they've got an online firewall. The big one is, is being able to look at what's coming at you and deciding, OK, what of these things are real threats? Which one of these are reconnaissance? And which one of this is just people scanning the Internet because they can and nobody can stop them? Yeah. Where do we think most? Most of these threatening attacks are coming from. Is it more domestic stuff than we would think, or is it lesions of hackers in North Korea, for instance? I think there have been several public discussions about hackers from North Korea, hackers from various other antagonistic nation states, as well as opportunistic hacker groups that are kind of behind the majority of these, especially the ones that are for ransom, has turned into one of the biggest ways to make money. They'll do work for anybody. Anyone who's going to be trying 
trying to attack the electrical infrastructure. What is their ultimate goal here? Obviously, it's to take out the lights, but is there a profit motive? Is there a take out the lights? There's possibly a way they can <laughs> get paid? Or is it just international mischief? It depends on which threat is targeting the energy infrastructure. In all honesty, a lot of the commodity stuff where they take down a system or they compromise a system and then use it for something else, a lot of that has a profit motive. It might be email spam, setting up a botnet on there. It might be setting up like a resolver. The ransomware stuff has got an immediate one. That's obviously more related to getting paid. As far as getting into the energy infrastructure and turning off the lights, I think that any threat that was looking to do that, they've got a non-monetary motive. I can't say that for certain, of course, but that's one where the consequences of doing that type of attack are pretty high. And I don't think anybody wants to get into those kind of consequences without a serious motive of their own. Mike, one of the points brought up in a Wired Magazine article was syncing up frequencies between the grids, between utility A, B, and C. Now, why is that so challenging, especially in this setting when you're trying to bring things back on? From a Blackstart standpoint, there's a recognition that one generator cannot keep an important asset online all the time. That asset has got a load profile that may not be compatible with a single generator, in which case you're gonna want multiple generators to make sure that it can cover the high highs and the low lows, not just from a load perspective, but also from a, I need immediate electricity now, and you don't want the generator to just go, I'm out, see you later. <laughs> you wanna have multiple generators together. You wanna to have significant load on the system because that way you're shedding load and not generation. And this came directly from the folks that DARPA brought in to advise them on the power side. And these are Blackstart experts. They've run not only Black Start scenarios, but I think at least one of them has actually been involved in an actual Black Start. So yeah. So Mike, they go through the week, they survive it. Hopefully no one's feelings got hurt too bad. But do you have advanced training for teams that have already gone through once? I'm sure that once they feel like they kind of have it, they may want to be up for another challenge. Who knows? I think that that would be fantastic. So in other words, like leveling up. One of our three goals going into this with the partnership with DOE was the recognition that the DARPA project at its core is a technology development project, okay? This exercise, while it has other uses and that our ability to walk in as utility participants and as Department of Energy be able to do other things during their exercise, it's not our exercise and it's not our training. Is there opportunity to continue this and to make it something that we can have more utility folks come in on, especially with this new virtual infrastructure, which I'm really looking forward to? I would love that, but there's currently no advanced training or anything simply because at its core, DARPA is doing a technology development program that we've been able to leverage bits and pieces of it to be able to bring in folks and to do this work. And it's been a very complimentary type of relationship there. And then finally, given all of this training, what you've learned and the utilities that have run through it, do you think utilities themselves should be standing up? Black start groups? Should regional organizations? Where do you think this leads? I want to make very clear the Black start focus was DARPA's focus. However, the situation slash scenario could be easily adapted to non-Black start type scenarios. And one of the things I think utility folks should look at is, yes, look at the Black start concern here but also try and apply it to your normal everyday conditions. Mm -hmm. Should we be standing up Black Star pieces? I can't make that decision. That might be a fun place to be. But I think the other side of this too is that utilities have a lot of other concerns where this scenario and this idea of an advanced attacker would apply to not only Black Star, but also to several other potential scenarios within their threat landscape. Very good. Michael Tucker, the unicorn, <laughs> DARPA Rex <laughs> program. 
<laughs> thank you so much for your time. All right. Thank you, Jay. It was a pleasure, and I'm glad we finally were able to work this out. That was Michael Tucker, Senior Engineering Consultant for the DARPA Radix program. As we alluded to in the intro and interview, Mike and his team are planning a seventh exercise, this time a virtual one for many of the utility participants. He says each will be given a virtual desktop with tools that are power and cyber related. Personnel on the ground at Plum Island will act as their hands, eyes, and ears. I want to thank Mike for his time and for setting up recording on his end. Didn't he sound great? And I also want to thank Jared Adams at DARPA for setting this up on their end. You can find plenty of pictures on energy-cast.com as well as on Instagram and Parler at Host Energy and Twitter at Host Energy Cast. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 95. Be sure to join us next week when we learn how coal could be getting a second life as the building block for next generation materials. Until then, I'm Jay Down. We'll see you next time.